Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. I know how to run a hair salon, but for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. She's a small business owner, too, so she knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios. I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Wednesday, February 8th. Well, that was some State of the Union address, wasn't it? It was good TV, for one thing. Biden was feisty, high energy, and sometimes playful. And politically, that tone was no accident, right? And so much of the point, like... Hey, America, I am not too old and slow to run for re-election. Thank you. He said the words, let's finish the job or finish the job 12 times. I counted in the transcript after noticing that it seemed to come up a lot as I was watching the speech. He practically announced his re-election bid right there. And the Republicans were feisty, too, as everybody's talking about. Democrat Jamie Raskin, have you heard this recently said of Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene, that when she's at an official thing, like where there's supposed to be a certain decorum, it's like she's at the Rocky Horror Picture Show. (laughs) Rocky Horror, for those of you who don't know, is a movie where the audience talks back at the screen. So we pulled a number of clips, both of Biden and the Republican respondent, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the governor of Arkansas. And I want to start in a different place than I think most reaction shows are starting. I want to start with a contrast between how Biden and Huckabee Sanders spoke about health care and having cancer. And we're going to play Huckabee Sanders first. You'll hear that she starts with a knock on Democrats for wanting government to control things and then segues into her cancer story. Democrats want to rule us with more government control, but that's not who we are. America is the greatest country the world has ever known because we're the freest country the world has ever known, with a people who are strong and resilient. Five months ago, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. It was a hard time for our family, particularly our kids, Scarlett, Huck, and George. But we kept our faith and persevered. Thanks to exceptional doctors here in Arkansas, a successful surgery, and the grace of God, I am cancer-free. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, it was good doctors and faith in God, the grace of God, that cured her cancer. Nothing about how she or other Americans pay for all that treatment. By contrast, Biden emphasized the health care costs that Americans face and a law he got passed with Democrat votes only and zero Republican votes to address it. This law also caps and won't go into effect on the 2025, costs, out-of-pocket drug costs for seniors on Medicare 
at a maximum of $2,000 a year. You don't have to pay more than $2,000 a year, no matter how much your drug costs are. Because you know why? You all know it. Many of you, like many of my family, have cancer. You know the drugs can range from $10,000, $11,000, $14,000, $15,000 for the cancer drugs. And if drug prices rise faster than inflation, drug companies are going to have to pay Medicare back the difference. Biden from the State of the Union on health care. And from Sarah Huckabee's language, it seems like that was part of the government control of our lives that she was against in her response. We have many more clips to play as we welcome our guests for this reaction uh, segment. Andrew Seligson, president of Public Agenda, a nonpartisan research and public engagement organization that emphasizes what they call hidden common ground, that is seeking to highlight areas in which there is agreement across party lines that people may not realize exists. He was previously associate chancellor for civic engagement and strategic planning at Rutgers University Camden and director of civic engagement learning in the Pace Center at Princeton. And Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large at the 19th, the news organization covering the intersection of women, politics, and policy, named after the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. And it's the 19th with an asterisk, because in practice, the amendment passed during Jim Crow excluded black women from the right to vote. Aaron was previously a national writer on race for the Associated Press. She's also worked at the Los Angeles Times and the Washington Post. So, Aaron, welcome back. Always good to have you. And Andrew Seligson, welcome to WNYC. Thank you so much, Brian. Brian, it's good to be with you. And listeners will get your reactions to anything from the State of the Union night as we go. 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692, or tweet at Brian Lehrer. Aaron, can I get your take on the contrast between those two clips on how they talked about cancer and the family and how it relates to their party's approaches? Yeah, I mean, Brian, I I think uh, a lot of your observations I, I tend to agree with. Also, you know, I think... Uh, the president in in really highlighting the story of of that couple who was uh, in the gallery, a guest of the first lady who had a daughter who who had uh, was able to survive and beat cancer, really kind of putting their story on display, a story that probably also resonated with many Americans across the country, felt particularly powerful uh, again and again, you know, using uh, examples of real Americans and, and talking about them to, to let them know that he really sees them and that that cancer fighting cancer is is some of the work left undone right the less finished the job theme he certainly puts cancer in that category of the work that they can collectively do as americans and that he is committed to doing as president whereas you know governor uh, huckabee sanders clearly you know felt that government really didn't have a role in in, in helping americans to deal with this disease that, that has taken uh, so so many people in this country and around the world. So that that was definitely a, a very sharp contrast between uh, those two speeches. Andrew, anything on that before we set up a next clip? I know you're interested in common ground and the polls I've seen show concern about health care costs as way up there among Americans of both parties. Yeah, I, I think one of the frustrations Democrats often have is that if if you understand kind of how a lot of issues are actually structured, the role that government plays. People are pretty supportive of things that it turns out 
are related to government policy, but very frequently the public doesn't know how those things are connected. And so it's it makes sense to people that it's the doctor and whatever else you believe might drive these things that that is behind it without recognizing the role government policy either maybe playing and helping you or in some cases uh, standing in the way of something and and it's about eliminating a barrier. So I think you know one of the things that I think Biden is good at rhetorically, he certainly has some challenges, is kind of humanizing the way that government works in people's lives. And I think for him, given you know his agenda, and as you said, his clear interest in running for re-election, trying to draw some of those connections is quite important because exactly as, as Governor Huckabee Sanders showed, there's an interest in uh, on the other side in painting government as always part of the problem, you know, which has been obviously a kind of part of the Republican playbook, at least since Ronald Reagan uh, made that approach quite famous. Looks like the Bronx is in the House wanting to react to State of the Union night. We're getting a few calls from the Bronx uh, first up. So let's hear from Kenny in the Bronx. You're on WNYC. Hi, Kenny. Hey, Brian. The, the Bronx always loves you. I was listening to your coverage last night with Kai Wright, and you were asking everyone for their opinion of their of the state. And, you know, for me, it was the state of chaos because of all the stuff that's been happening from the pandemic on and Trump and everything. But so now, the, your answer to the you know, State of the Union is, is the State of the Union is in a state of chaos? No, that was yesterday. And today, upon hearing the president, I'm, I'm, I'm assured. And the fact that he, he, not only because he shouted down the Republicans heckling him, but the fact that he was basically um, in command, he actually has done legislative stuff. And and he's doing his he's doing his thing and he was confident and he was he's trying to make him, you know, he's trying to even though there's only a four majority, a four Republican majority, he's he's working with them and he's trying to talk to them. So the fact that uh, he's doing what he's doing, he's actually has a legislative accomplishments. He's bringing monies to New York. That's that's the most important thing. Kenny, thank you very much. And interesting that Kenny there, and we're going to talk about this with our guests as we go, um, points up both bringing it to the Republicans and talking about bipartisan things. And, and let's, get to the, let's get to the feisty Biden um, that everybody's, everybody's talking about. He was feisty, and on the Biden feisty track, here's the clip, and I, I didn't want to lead with it because everybody's been playing it, but this is the one I'm seeing replayed the most and it is worthy of attention, in which he seems to goad the Republicans. This is to my eye, anyway, what happened. He seemed to goad the Republicans into booing him, and then he has his response to that ready to engage with. It comes at the end of a section on making the wealthy pay their fair share in taxes, which he segues into the topic of Social Security and Medicare. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you, anybody who doubts it, contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. So, Andrew, that was political theater like nothing I remember seeing at the State of the Union address. That's why it's getting so much attention, I guess. A lot of people don't remember seeing anything like that. Did it also look to you like Biden set that whole thing up so he could look good and high energy and kind of get the Republicans on the record about not cutting Social Security and Medicare? Maybe he was leaning into a bipartisan priority 
and drawing a distinction between the parties at the same time there. Yeah, it was it was a, it was a little hard to say whether he got kind of lucky and improvised well or whether it was scripted. And, you know, I think for, for folks who, you know, there there is this plan from I'm pretty sure from Rick Scott that has language that can at least be interpreted as indicating that he would sunset uh, Social Security and Medicare and has not, you know, gotten broad support among Republicans, et cetera. So I think it, it certainly was calculated to seem like dirty pool to the Republicans, uh, which, you know, as he said, he kind of had a technical defense for. But I definitely think, yes, the the opportunity to kind of show that he's ready to mix it up in defense of those very popular programs that so many people, including so many seniors, rely on. Uh, and, you know, that that certainly worked well for him. And yeah, I think it's, it is absolutely the uh, the kind of like, the, the you know, that mix of things we were discussing, that there's a readiness to kind of stand and fight for the American people. That's part of what he's presenting. But also, right, uh, uh, you know, looking for the common ground. And as he said, you know, the, the fact that he was able to wrap it up by saying, hey, if if it looks like we've come to some agreement here, that's terrific. And, you know, it, it kind of allowed him to stand tough on the issue. It's obviously a Democratic priority to protect those programs. And I think he's partly teeing up the battle that is about to come over the debt ceiling uh, as, you know, those entitlement programs are likely to be part of that story. So I think he wants to kind of, the better he can do at setting up Republicans, you know, for being on record that they want to protect those programs, the better position he is going into that. Um, but yeah, I think that sort of balance that he's constantly seeking to strike between toughness, readiness to fight on the issues that matter to people, but also a willingness to come to agreement. It kind of all came together there because he had that smiling, laughing uh, kind of approach to it, which just made yeah. him seem like a pretty relatable person. Right. And whether he set the whole thing up or, as you speculate, maybe just ad-libbed well when he got that response from the Republicans, either way, it makes him look on it. And uh, not over the hill. Peter in Great Neck wants in on this portion of the conversation. Peter, you're on WNYC. Hello. Hi. Good morning, Brian. Thanks for taking my call. I did not. I do not watch State of the Union's. First of all, I, 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 the next day I read, listen to NPR, read the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, etc. This part of his speech really gets to me and aggravates me because. Everyone knows what it is going to take to fix Social Security and set it up for the long term. And this type of sloganeering and using the State of the Union to demonize the other side, to me, strikes me as one of the most craven things that a president can do in the State of the Union. And I'm Gen X. I personally, mm -hmm. you know... Uh, I look forward to collecting Social Security. I've paid into it all my life. And I also know that some things that have to be done um, may, might include raising taxes, might include uh, adjusting the benefits, and might include raising the retirement age. But this idea that Republicans want to cut Social Security or sunset it, that is really just, if it's, at worst, it's lying and it best it's misdirection and that yeah. to someone who knows what the facts are is really frustrating yeah to the word sunset comes from that proposal maybe you know this by republican senator rick every Scott, five Scott years of Florida. Rick Scott says, yes every, right 
One right. Republican puts a proposal together and it gets demonized by, by the other side. We've been seeing this kabuki act for so long that if somebody has an idea to fix Social Security, whether it's George Bush or Rick Scott, and it has some kind of sense, it gets twisted and demonized by the Democrats into something that it's not. It's, it's really aggravating for somebody who's, you know, 10 years away from retirement. Peter, thank you. We appreciate your call. Thank you. Call us again. And speaking of seniors, here's another kind of senior, Luke in Westchester, who is a senior in high school. Hi, Luke. You're on WNYC. Thanks for calling in today. Hi. Thank you so much, Brian. Um, what is it called? I was um, actually listening to the watching the State of the Union with my uh, my friends last night. We were uh, we're in AP Gov class, and we had to uh, fill out uh, a sheet while we were watching and we were analyzing it. And I actually thought that Biden was very enthusiastic, and I kind of disagree with the, the previous caller. I thought that Biden calling out the specific Republicans, not, not specific, but calling out the Republicans who have voiced some, not exactly opposition, but just some, some thoughts that aren't exactly 100% in favor of Social Security, I think that that's actually something that invigorates the, the party. And also, at the end, what I thought he did was smart was that he reached out and he said, call my office, be, be bipartisan. I thought that that was actually, I thought that that was a good mm-hmm. idea. You like that. Did, you, did last night change your impression of Biden in any way from what you may have had before? Um, I mean, I've been pretty enthusiastic about Biden. I, I supported him in, in 2020, and obviously I couldn't vote, but... I support him, and I plan to, in 2024, if he's a nominee, vote for him again. Vote for him very enthusiastically. Yeah. Well, I hope you get extra credit for calling the show uh, in your AP government class. (laughs) Thank Thank you you so much. Luke, call us again. All right, one more clip. Um, And Aaron, I see that your article on the 19th site this morning is about Tyree Nichols' parents being at the State of the Union address. Looks like you interviewed his mom, Rovon Wells, and Biden referenced how, as a white father, he never had to have the talk with his own kids about how to act when you encounter the police. Then he said this, which you highlighted in your piece. It's up to us, to all of us. We all want the same thing. Neighborhoods free of violence. Law enforcement of enforcement who earns the community's trust. Just as every cop, when they pin on that badge in the morning, has a right to be able to go home at night, so does everybody else out there. Our children have a right to come home safely. How did that strike you, Aaron? How did you uh, contextualize it in your reporting today? Well, it, it was striking, Brian, because uh, Rovan Wells, uh, her her husband, Rodney, they are, to my mind, and I've been covering uh, the Black Lives Matter movement for the better part of a decade, uh, the first time that you've seen parents of, of a black American killed by law enforcement in the first lady's box at a State of the Union address, right? So that kind of signals the priority that the administration is putting on this issue. You had several family members of, of black families affected by this issue who were also in the House gallery at the invitation of black lawmakers who are continuing to push for federal uh, police reform legislation and, and really putting a face on this issue, making it more human. That is certainly something that Rovan Wells told me that she was hoping her presence 
would would bring to the speech and and to this issue as uh, federal police reform legislation continues to stall in Congress. We know that the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act didn't pass last summer, got stalled out in the Senate. And so uh, these families are really hoping that, um, you know, the tragic uh, death of Tyree Nichols is going to be something that um, can help to create momentum for uh, this issue yet again, uh, as we have seen uh, in in past years with uh, mass shooting incidents uh, and, and folks trying to push for gun gun violence, uh, action around gun violence, which we did see uh, as able to happen last year in Congress. And so uh, seeing these families, seeing Ravon Weld, you know, without even having to hear from that family at all, but but for the president to address them and to talk about uh, their their son and to talk about this issue uh, in a way that, that says that he sees them and that this is something that he cares about and that the American people should be working together to address, uh, even while praising law enforcement, that, that he does uh, have respect for when they, they are doing the right thing, but, but also wanting to hold bad actors accountable. That was really something that felt remarkable for a state of the union uh, and something yeah. that has not happened. Yeah, and good that they were there, but also, really sadly, another example of what you called in your piece having to grieve in public uh, for Tyree's um, parents. Andrew, last word from you with your interest in bipartisanship and identifying areas of common ground. Um, Did the president, and we've had so much interesting conversation between you two and the callers on what was too much centrism, not enough addressing particular issues, or hitting a sweet spot for actually getting things done. Do you think this sets him up in any way with a Republican Congress to get some bipartisan legislation passed this year? I think that is, well, it's a tough question. I'm immediately uh, having trouble even forming a sentence because I think, you know, uh, as I think Aaron referred to earlier, there's Kevin McCarthy, but there's also the wing of the Republican Party that made it so hard for Kevin McCarthy to even just win the speaker election. And I think, you know, it, it seems unlikely that the president would be able to peel away uh, Republicans, given people's fears about getting primaried, the fact that so many folks are running in districts where that's where the game is, not the general election. You know, just the the mathematics of it make it hard to break up that party. And it's hard to imagine that the Lauren Boberts and Matt Gases and Marjorie Taylor Greens are ready to start compromising or looking for common ground issues. Uh, so I, I'm not sure that, you know, I think part of what he's doing is a, a 2024 strategy about saying, yeah, we were blocked from doing the things we wanted to do, but you understand what I was trying to do, which is take care of the bread and butter issues facing the American public. Obviously, that's what he spent a huge amount of the speech on, manufacturing jobs, accomplishments already through the infrastructure bill and and the sort of get, you know, finish the job uh, routine. So I, I think I don't expect to see a ton of bipartisanship in the in the way the Congress works. Uh, but I think Biden wants to go into 2024 with the public thinking of him as the one who was seeking to be reasonable and mm-hmm. Republicans refusing to compromise. Andrew Seligson from Public Agenda, Aaron Haynes from the 19th. Thank you both so much for getting up and doing this with us this morning after I'm sure you were up late, late last night uh, digesting the two speeches. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here, Brian. Thank you.
Thank you, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.